And good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to Rounders, a history of baseball in America. I am, as always, your host, Jeff Lambert. Thanks for tuning in. So today we're going to be talking about someone history remembers in an unfair light, in my opinion. Sometimes there's more to the story, and sometimes we need to reassess our perspectives on a certain player, team, or uh, period in baseball history. So we're going to be talking about a gentleman named Smeed Jolly. He uh, has become synonymous with uh, a tag I don't think is fair to his legacy, and I'm going to present a case for you to decide to see if you agree or not. And I'll be interested to hear your feedback, so please uh, make sure you do. I'm available on social media. You can follow me on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at Rounders Podcast. You can also shoot me an email at rounderspodcast at gmail.com. Love the feedback. I love to have the conversation. So please give me some feedback once you uh, finish listening to this episode. I'd be happy to hear what you think. I have two episodes coming up over the next two weeks. We have this one. And then next weekend, I'll be releasing another episode featuring Jeff Fields, who is a former MLB draft pick and a collector of vintage catcher's gear. I had a great conversation with him a week ago. I can't wait to release that episode and talk a little bit about the history of the catcher and his collection of catcher's equipment. So make sure you tune in for that next week as well. That is all for now. Let's get to our show. Before we jump into today's topic full depth, I just want to give a little overview of how I came across the name of an individual named Smeed Jolly. It was over a year ago when the podcast had first started and I was doing some research on potential topics and I came across this post on Reddit. It was under our baseball, the baseball community, for those of you who read it. And the post read, quote, T-I-L, today I learned, of Smeed Jolly a professional baseball player who committed three errors on one play. This intrigued me, so I started doing some internet research on the individual very lightly, and I stuck it in my folder for future research. Well, now it's time to bring the name up again, and I've spent about two weeks going through Smeed Jolly's life and his legacy, and, you know, as I'm reading about this guy, I'm thinking... You know, I don't think he got a fair shake. I think the perspective needs to shift on what he brought to the game. It may not have been on a superstar level, but certainly the uh, reputation that he's been saddled with, I think, is just a smidge unfair. And I want to talk to you about it. And uh, there's a case I'm going to present that I think Smeed Jolly deserves to be remembered differently by baseball fans and historians. So let's go back to the original story, the one that he's remembered at currently in terms of when people look up or Google Smeed Jolly, this is probably what you're going to find and his his, uh, crowning achievement during his baseball career. So the legend is, is that there was a game where he was playing where he was in right field and he went to field the line drive that dropped in front of him and he let the ground ball roll through his legs. So trying to catch up to the ball, which went between his legs, he went to play it off of the wall. And when it hit the wall, it rolled through his legs again. So he finally got the ball. And when he threw it in, he overthrew the cutoff man for the third error. So just to recap, the first one went through his legs off the hop, rolled to the wall, bounced off the wall and went through his legs again. And then he overthrew the cutoff man for the trifecta. 
So that is the uh, triple error play that Smeed Jolly is often known for when you look up his name. Now, I mean, what kind of baseball player commits three errors on the same play? Well, Smeed Jolly is known as that individual. So as I mentioned, I started doing some more research on him because I went into this with the mindset, this is going to be a great episode. I'm going to do uh, you know, a great overall view. There's got to be other stories about this guy's ineptitude in the field. And while he was not a good fielder by a long shot, the information that I came across pointed to strengths in other areas that I think that deserve more attention than the three errors in one game or the lackluster fielding. So let's go into that a little bit more. And before I do, if you want to follow along with me, now would be a good time to just pause. And if you're on your phone or you're in front of your computer, just Google Smeed Jolly real quick. And you'll see very quickly, you know, out of the top five hits that come up, they'll talk about his life. But almost every one of them goes quickly into this guy was a bad fielder. Here's the three errors on one play story. Just to illustrate one of the top five hits, there's an article titled Smeed Jolly's Comedy of Errors. And it lists him as the worst defensive player in the history of baseball. That is a heavy charge. On his Wikipedia, even in his entry, it states that, quote, Jolly's glove was too great a liability to sustain an MLB career, end quote. And as mentioned before, and we will talk about this, yes, there is plenty of, you know, historical precedent to say that this guy was not the best fielder. But the worst fielder in baseball history? We're going to look at that. So, is this a fair label? That is the question that we are going to uh, look at today. And to start off, I'm going to present my viewpoint to you. I don't think that that is a fair label that has been placed on Smee Jolly. And I'm going to give you three reasons why his legacy should not be tied in as this worst defensive player in baseball history. Reason number one. Smee Jolly believe it or not, was a historic offensive player. And that should be his legacy, not his defensive ineptitude. Let me go over the stats for you. Smeed Jolly played 20 years of organized baseball. 20 years. Now, he played four in the American League, and he split his time between the Red Sox and the White Sox. Kind of thing for Sox, I guess. The other 11 years... After, well, actually before and after, he split time in between playing for the American and National League. He spent time playing for a league called the Pacific Coast League. And I'm going to talk more about them in a second, but the talent level that was in that independent league at that time almost rivaled the American League and National League. So just tuck that in the back of your heads. He also played another five years in addition to those three leagues in various minor leagues across the country. So he was a bit of a journeyman going to different leagues, but remember there were a lot of different leagues competing for fans' attention during this time. Now let's go over his lifetime stats as a hitter. He notched a 367 lifetime average, and this was a solid number for for overall. Now you could start off by saying, well, hold on a second, Jeff. He hit 367, but he only played four years in the American or National League. Okay, let's isolate just his time in those four years in the American and National League. He hit 305 as a major league batter. He hit 46 home runs in 473 major league games and 336 more home runs he hit in 2228 minor league games. So his ability to perform at the plate 
was certainly not just reserved to the minor league time that he spent. This was also when he played in the big leagues during this time, too. And remember, this is the late 1920s we're talking about. This is just getting out of the dead ball era. We're seeing the the evolution of the batter during this time, and he was at the forefront of that with his offensive prowess. He had one of the greatest four-year stretches of any player to play organized baseball offensively. Let me share. From 1926 to 1929, Smeed Jolly batted 346, 397, 404, and 387 consecutively, 1926 to 1929. He slugged 138 home runs in that four-year period. In 1927, he led the Pacific Coast League in RBIs. He hit 163. And in 1928, he led in almost every offensive category in the Pacific Coast League. And that year, he won the Triple Crown. That year, he hit 404 with 45 home runs and 188 RBIs. So that is his career at the plate. Very impressive, right? Well, let me go back to the leagues that he played in, because I think that's what we have to to figure out here. He spent four years in the majors, and he put together a very good resume in terms of a hitter, but he spent most of his career in this Pacific Coast League. Let's talk about that league real quick, because I don't want to just shrug off the years that he spent outside the AL and the NL, because I think it's part of his legacy as a very talented hitter, as opposed to being this defensive uh, clown. I guess you could say. So the Pacific Coast League, if you're not familiar, it was a premier league during the first half of the 20th century. Up until the late 1940s, they were considered on par with the American League and National League in terms of talent. Now, there was a nickname that was given to this league actually during this time period, and they were known as the third major league. That's how good the talent was and the players that they showcased. The league had a minimum salary of $5,000 per year, and that was comparable with the American League and National League. So often the established players that played in the AL and NL would have no problem going to play for the PCL because of the fact that the salaries were similar and the the talent overall that you were facing was similar too. So that's the situation that Smeed Jolly found himself in. He was playing against talent in three different leagues, but those three leagues were very similar in terms of the competition that he was facing. Now, as an offensive player, as I mentioned, he was very, very good. And it wasn't just looking at his stats that backed that up. Take Bob Hoy, for instance. He's a baseball historian, and he wrote in one of his books that, quote, Smeed Jolly may have been the finest hitter ever in minor league baseball, end quote. Sabres' Terry Turner has rightfully designated that he thinks that Smeed Jolly had the, if he had the benefit of playing as a DH in today's American League, he may well have been known as one of the true standouts of the game during his time period. But unfortunately for Smeed, he was born into the wrong era because the DH was not around yet. Thirdly, in 1929, and this is at the height of his career, The Sporting News, which was a very large sports publication at the time, not so much now, but, you know, back when, uh, in 1929, they put Smeed Jolly on the cover of their magazine, and they dubbed him with a new nickname called the Arkansas Assassin, and they compared him directly in that article to Babe Ruth. They said that both began as pitchers, which they did, they both were left-handed hitters, and they both could hit with power like nobody else. 
So there, just to recap, is my reason number one that Smeed Jolly deserves a different uh, legacy than being known as the uh, baseball's worst fielder. He was a historic offensive player. His offensive numbers back it up, not only in the American League and the Pacific Coast League, a league that was on par in terms of talent. So there's reason number one. Reason number two. Let's look at his actual fielding, okay? We see that everyone trots out the three errors in one game thing. They trot out some quotes that were made that kind of highlighted that he wasn't very good defensively. And there's certainly, you know, I'm not defending him and saying he was not a bad defensive player. I'm just saying he's not the worst ever to play and he deserves to be remembered for something different. But just to be fair, Johnny Riddle, who was his coach when he spent time, or actually, excuse me, when he was in the the National League, uh, Johnny Riddle was the coach of the Cardinals. And he said that when he saw Smeed Jolly play outfield, he said, quote, it's like watching a kid chasing soap bubbles, end quote, excuse me. So there you have it. Uh, One quote that I found that I thought was fun, but... Overall, if you look at his stats and you look at, I guess, the overall body of his work, this whole worst fielder in history thing, it just doesn't hold up. And let me explain to you why. Yes, Smeed Jolly, you know, he, like I said, he's not a great player. But he, in his 16 seasons that he split between the AL, the NL, and the PCL, he averaged a fielding percentage of 954. Now, that's not good, but that is not the worst. Now, in his four years in the majors, he compiled a 944 fielding percentage. So he was consistently below average for most of his career. But here's the thing. He had some really tough assignments during his career to add on to the fact that, uh, you know, he he was below average in terms of his uh, fielding ability. Let me give you an example. He spent four years playing with the San Francisco Seals, and they were a team in the Pacific Coast League. Now, the field that the Seals played on was incredibly short, their right field, which was at Recreation Park. So because of this, uh, Smeed Jolly was a right fielder, mostly, during his time as a a position player, and uh, he would be put in right field constantly during home games when he played for the Seals. So basically what would happen was, He would have to, because the right field wall was so short, any base hits that came his way, any that rolled to the wall, his job was not to throw to the cutoff man. Smeed was expected to field the ball and throw it directly to first base to try and catch the runner. That's the type of throw that he had to make. And most of the errors that he was charged during those four years that helped bring his lifetime fielding percentage down were overthrows to first base. And that is a hard, hard throw to make when you're in the outfield to have to throw it to the first baseman in order to be able to get that, that uh, runner out. And so, you know, you have things like that factoring into his overall career that I think deserves some attention. Another example, he played two of his four seasons, like I mentioned in the majors with the Red Sox at Fenway park. And he had to deal with this uh, very interesting setup in Fenway at this time called Duffy's cliff. Now, you can learn more about Duffy's Cliff if you go back to my episode, episode three, which is entitled The Green Monster. It talks all about it. But basically, just as an overview, during this time, basically uh, Fenway's left field had a 10-foot high incline, just natural incline in the field, right in front of the wall. 
and they would use it where overflow crowds could come and sit if uh, they needed to be able to do so. But when crowds weren't there, fielders were expected to play the ball that went up that incline. So here again, you have a situation where uh, you know, Smee Jolly played a lot of outfield time. When he was placed in left field, he would have to chase balls up this incline if it weren't occupied. So there were a lot of errors were made chasing balls to the warning track, having to chase them up this this incline and make the throw back in. And uh, he, he dealt very poorly with the fielding during his time in the majors. And this, of course, impacted his overall fielding percentage. There's a story that goes that... Uh, it got so bad at one point in terms of him being able to handle Duffy's cliff that the coaches would trot him out in the mornings before games and they would just hit fungos to left and Jolly would just have to practice running up the hill to try and make the catch and adjust to the incline. So the, the story goes that after this happened a few times, the next time that he started in left field, he had a chance to show that the practice had paid off. And there was a game against the Washington Senators where there was a long fly ball that was hit the left and Jolly took off and he ran easily up the incline and he turned around to make the catch, but he saw that he had overrun the ball. So he started back down the incline to try and adjust and he tripped and he fell flat on his face rolling down the the incline that was there in left field. And the ball bounced near him and by the time Jolly got back to his feet, the batter had made it all the way to third base. So here you have, a, I guess, a funny story of Smeed Jolly's uh, issues, I guess you could say, while playing in Boston. So there you have it. Uh, I guess an overall look at maybe some of the factors that contributed to his lower fielding percentage when he was in the majors. But overall, if you look at his career fielding percentage average, it is not good, but it is not the worst. And so we're talking about shifting perspectives here. Does he deserve to be known as the worst fielder in baseball history? I say no. Now, there is actually one game where Smeed Jolly saved the ball game due to his defensive ability. Not only had he singled and homered in a game on June in 1930, but he threw out what could have been the potential winning run for Philadelphia. It was the top of the 10th inning, and he was cutting down a runner at home plate from the outfield. He was able to do so. So he he fielded a base hit, threw the ball in the home, gunned him out. Same thing happened again in the 11th inning of the same game. He made a great running catch, and then he did a rifle shot to the plate and got the runner who was tagging up. The White Sox won that game 7-6 to six in the bottom of the 11th, and that was thanks to Smeed Jolly's fielding. But overall, yes, there was a liability of him being able to handle the field consistently. There's no doubt of that. But we are looking at whether he deserves that reputation. And should we shift our perspective on him? So we've gone through two. We talked about his offensive ability and how that has uh, been kind of washed away as a major aspect of his career. And then we talked about looking at his overall defensive body of work and maybe how it's not as bad as we would expect it to be being dubbed as the worst fielder in baseball history. There's a third reason why I think Smeed deserves a different legacy. And this is probably the one that is the most uh, convincing in my appeal, which I will present to you right after we take a break for the seventh inning stretch. And welcome back, everybody. I'd like to thank you for staying with me. We are talking about Smeed Jolly, who has been often dubbed as one of the uh, worst fielders in baseball history. 
And as I had mentioned before, if you do a web search and read about his life, this is often the first thing that's mentioned about him. In this continuing series that I want to keep doing, I want us to look at possibly shifting our perspectives of baseball players and their legacies. And I think Smead Jolly's story is a great place to start just because of the fact that if you look at his, uh, a lot of his entries online and a lot of the information that's presented about him, usually you'll notice the defensive errors almost right off the bat in terms of what people have to say about his career. But there's so much more. And if you look at the, the background, it just doesn't line up. And so we covered two uh, reasons that I have that I feel that Smead Jolly deserves a different look. One of these reasons was based on his career offense and how formidable he was at the plate, not only in his time in the major leagues, but also with the PCL and in the minor leagues. The second reason I talked about was looking at his overall defensive stats across all of the leagues he played in. He certainly wasn't the worst. He was a liability in the field, and he would have benefited if the DH had existed during this time, but certainly not the worst fielder ever. So there's two pieces of evidence that I bring before you to rethink uh, how we view Smead Jolly. But the third one, I think, has the most reason for us to pause and think about how we remember this gentleman. And reason number three is, like I said, a lot of times when you hear about Smead Jolly, that triple error is often brought up to kind of highlight, well, look at what a bad fielder he was. Well, get a load of this, ladies and gentlemen. That triple play error may not have even happened. The crowning moment of his career may have actually not even occurred. Let me explain. The story of Smead's three errors on one play, yes, it's one of the most widely told stories that we talked about of a baseball player's just slip up and it stuck with him. Here's the problem. The story first surfaced when Washington Senators outfielder Goose Goslin shared it in an interview in December of 1932. It was an interview with Baseball Magazine. He stated that he saw the play happen at a game in Comiskey Park in 1930 while they were playing against the White Sox, which Smead Jolly was a part of. So he's saying it happened in 1930, Comiskey Park, when the Senators were playing the White Sox. Now, Russell Schneider, who was a sports writer in Cleveland, said in an interview that the triple error happened in a game at League Park in Cleveland and that he heard the story from Cleveland pitcher Mel Harder. So let's go to Mel Harder. Mel Harder's account is the one that's quoted most. So we get this story from this pitcher who played for Cleveland. And it showed up in all of the books that discuss Smead Jolly's triple error. So we have differing accounts of when it happened, where it happened. There isn't even a consensus about where it occurred or which team it happened against. In fact, authors Bruce Nash and Alan Zulo, they wrote a book called The Baseball Hall of Shame. And they put the incident at Philadelphia and said it happened in right field. And they have Bing Miller as the batter who was rounding the bases at Scheib Park. So there's three different stories about when this occurred for Smead Jolly. And the problem is there's no recording of it in any actual history books. All we have are secondhand accounts. And they all happened in different places for a variety of reasons. Who knows why all these three different people said it happened. But there, there's no official record of this even occurring. 
So here we have saddled this individual with the legacy of someone who committed an error, a triple error on one play, someone who was just a disaster in the field, and again, labeled as one of the worst fielders in baseball history. But I've presented you with three reasons to rethink that, to possibly shift your perspective on Smeed Jolly's legacy as a baseball player. And it's not just me. I think that overall, if you pick through history, there is cause to really think differently about what he brought to the game. Let's take Babe Pinelli, for instance. He was a major league infielder and an umpire later on. And he told a researcher from the National Baseball Hall of Fame that, quote, Smeed wasn't much of a guy with the glove, but he was murder with the wood. He was a pull hitter, though once in a while he'd boom one to center. He just oozed confidence. There wasn't a pitcher born that Jolly felt he couldn't knock their brains out. End quote. So there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Smeed Jolly. We know the current view on this gentleman's career as a baseball player. I bring before you three reasons on why maybe we should shift our perspective about what he brought to the game uh, as we look at players and their contributions. I'd be very interested in to hear your feedback about Smeed Jolly and what you think based on these three reasons that I gave. Again, please reach out to me on social media. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Rounders Podcast. Again, that's one word, Rounders Podcast. Send me an email at rounderspodcast at gmail.com. And, you know, overall, let's have a discussion about Smeed. Let's keep it going. Am I on the money or did I make a point that made you rethink about this gentleman's legacy. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode. I appreciate your support as always. And if you can do me the favor of just remembering to share the podcast with a friend or leaving a review on your podcast app of choice, it's greatly appreciated. And remember, there are only two seasons, winter and baseball. <laughs>